0: This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Joshua Cutchen is back with us on Dreamland. Joshua has been on Dreamland a number of times, starting in 2019 when we discussed the mysteries of the fairy realm. Uh, he, we've gone on a deep dive into visitor secrets. He has been with Mike Cleland on. Uh, remote healing and remote viewing and he, he's been here a lot but he's got if you can believe it this is not a small mind he looks like a very affable ordinary guy forget about it it's not that, that's not where he's coming from uh, he's written an amazing new book called ecology of souls uh, he's the author of seven critically acclaimed books trojan feast the food and drink offerings of aliens fairies and sasquatch which we have talked about the brimstone deceit an in-depth examination of supernatural sense otherworldly odors and monstrous miasmas okay Uh, thieves in the night history of supernatural child abductions and where the footprints end, high Strangeness and the Bigfoot phenomenon—all of them very cool. All of them loved by you. I mean, we didn't talk about all of them, but uh, the ones we talked about were loved by you. You loved them. And Joshua is going to be in—I uh, hopefully—in the video chat with us soon. Uh, I'll send the uh, send out details about that. That's a lot of fun. It happens on Saturdays, not all Saturdays, but. If, fair number of Saturdays. You get announcements in the newsletter beforehand, so do subscribe to the unknowncountry.com newsletter. You won't get a bunch of spam. Just a weekly newsletter. And uh, if that's too much for you, then don't do it, but then you don't get to know about these things. Okay. Joshua has been all... Where do you actually come from, though? Your your, uh, your Curriculum Vitae on your website, which is com, by the way, doesn't really tell us much about you. It tells about what you've done, but tell us more about who you are. You're a musician, among
1: other things. Well, I suppose that the the simplest thing right away is to see that I'm sitting here in Georgia wearing a Wisconsin sweatshirt, and I'm from North Carolina, so that gives you sort of a thumbnail oh, sketch. Oh, that makes
0: it simple. We Now we understand exactly where you're coming from.
1: <laughs> yes, sir. So I was, I was raised in North Carolina, um, right. about 20 minutes north of Charlotte, and I went to undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin for music performance. I came down to the University of Georgia, where I got a master's in music literature and a master's in journalism. And, you know, big cities have a certain gravity and they sort of pull you in over time. So I'm getting closer and closer to Atlanta. Um, I might have to achieve escape velocity at some point, but right now I'm in the Marietta area.
0: Okay. Well, that didn't tell us much either. Uh, It was interesting. It was interesting. No, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not pressuring you at all in any way whatsoever, except what the heck are you doing writing things about... A New Mythology of Death and the Paranormal, for example. I uh, read... To... I didn't hear anything in any of this <laughs> that tells me why you do what you do. And not only that, you're brilliant. I mean, these books are phenomenal. Well, that's very oh, kind gosh, of you, he's I so, guess. so shy, but he knows it's true. Well,
1: well I, that's very kind of you. I just kept on wanting to interject that uh, I guess I read too many books by this Strieber guy and that sort of put me off on this path.
0: Oh Um, boy, yeah! I'm a I'm a real thorn in the side of the (laughs) of the ordinary world. I don't belong here. Well, I think you write about people who don't belong here and creatures who don't belong here too. Yeah. In fact, if I'm not correct, uh, where are we in here? Uh, uh, Let's let's just jump in here. Okay. At one, there's a lot of cool stuff in this book about fairy folks, it, the ecology of souls, and we're going to talk about this huge idea—a new mythology of death and the paranormal—over the course of the because that's the subtitle of the book. Over the course of the interview, but let's talk first about the theories of the others, because you know, I mean, I've I've had them around in my life most of my life, and a lot of my listeners have too. A lot of people have. Uh, tell us, tell us your, when I say aliens and fairy folk, what am I actually saying? What, 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 what's the connection that you
1: see? Well, I was always really skeptical of the extraterrestrial hypothesis. I I grew up as a kid who was mostly into stuff like Bigfoot and other cryptids. Um, but I was I'd sort of Goldilocks to my way into some of those criticisms that Jacques Vallée um, has mentioned in the past about the extraterrestrial hypothesis. But I was always really interested in the contact scenario, as it were. And it wasn't until I started learning more about altered states of consciousness and you know picking up again a lot of your work that I sort of found myself more readily integrating some of these ideas. So I think that, uh, you know, one of these fundamental texts to me has always been Jacques Vallée's Passport to Magonia, which I think does an excellent job of demonstrating how whatever this phenomenon is, because I do agree that there is something objectively going on, it seems to recontextualize itself depending upon culture. Uh, But there's something that kind of gets left on the table in Passport to Magonia, which is what would a passport to Magonia written in the 13th century look like, you know, so Valet does a great job of saying, well, this UFO stuff looks a lot like this fairy faith, but if you would go back far enough, they'd say, oh, well, this fairy faith looks like a lot like, you know, how we interact with the dead. And to that extent, um, the lines between fairies and the, the human dead are very permeable. Um, You know, that you have stories about, the dead being seen amongst the folk. You have stories of the dead becoming folk in some instances. There's just a lot of mixture there. And that coupled with that very prescient observation that Anne made all those years ago about this having something to do with what we call death were things that I think, uh, I felt needed to be explored and I wanted to sort of nest them within a history of belief about the way that we think about souls and about the way that we think about death. And I really thought it was going to be a quick little book, maybe 80,000 words at the max. And I think now we're sitting at like 265,000 is where it wound up because yeah. it well, became it's apparent. Incredible. What a masterpiece, frankly. I mean, it's, it's a, it's really something
0: it really well,
1: is. Thank you so much. It's sort of, it sort of evolved into a snapshot of how I think about these things and how I sort of make them all fit together, because I am in a lot of ways what might be termed a pan-paranormalist or something like that. I want to see how the fairy stuff fits in with the cryptid stuff, and I want to see how NDEs fit into the, the UFO experience. And, you know, a lot of these observations have been made. You've got Eddie Bullard, who drew a lot of similarities between shamanic initiations and the UFO contact experience. You've got Kenneth Ring, obviously, whom you worked with quite a bit, uh, drawing the connections between near-death experiences and and the ufo contact experience but it just seems like every contact modality has the vestiges of the same shared attributes regardless of where it is so into those comparisons you can also take visits to fairyland certain cryptid encounters a lot of these you know again these shamanic initiations these near-death experiences they all seem to be about crossing that veil and you know the more i sort of explored this the more I, i i came to suspect um, and this may not be true, but it's just a suspicion that I have, that the veil is indeed the veil between the living and the dead, or the veil between worlds. I mean, exactly what the distinction is between those two ideas becomes very, very porous. Well, the you know, let's talk a little bit before we go on.
0: Obviously, I agree with you, because the dead showed up routinely with the visitors at our cabin. and, it, and of course, there's always the the possible level of deception there, which fascinates me. Before we go that down that road, what about this? The Vedic idea. Of, what is it about the um, about the, uh, the 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 kind of mirroring that's going on? Yeah, you know yeah. that because you know I've been in a mirror
1: universe. I've actually been in it physically. So there are a couple of things that you could look at. You know, there is the Vedic idea of that, you know, the realm of, of Maya or the, the sort of veil, rather, of Maya separating worlds. But also, if you look at a lot of these older cosmologies, there are often descriptions of things that do sound like mirror worlds. I mean, if you look at some of this older, you know, Western European fairy faith and, of course, the fairy stuff isn't exclusively Western European. You find little people literally amongst every culture, but specifically zeroing in on the Western European stuff, you find a lot of instances where they say, Oh, the fairies cry at births and laugh at funerals. And there's this implication almost that there is sort of a revolving door between this world and that world where, you know, it's not really life or death. It's just which state you happen to be in like a flipping coin. And, you know, you can also couple that with some, older ideas, which we don't really think about in the modern secularized West, or even in the religious West, to be honest, this idea that the afterlife isn't some sort of, you know, realm where time is held in stasis and you just get to be amongst everyone who's passed on. There are ideas in older cosmologies, especially from like Egypt or, you know, ancient, you know, imperial China that the afterlife was again, a mirror uh, version of this world where, You know, according to that, you would have to get up and work, and uh, there might be technological process that happens on the other side of this veil, just as there's technological process, the technological progress that happens on this side of that as well. You know, Egyptian farmers would have to get up and plow their fields and worship all the same gods, and basically life just continued. So once you take that little tidbit of information and you frame it within some speculation in ufology which has been around for quite some time that this is literally afterlife technology it starts to get really bizarre but i think it starts to get really compelling in a lot of ways and then of course you know i'm reminded of of your uh, discussion of the implant and how that was designed by constantine raudeve from the other side and so it seems like there might be something to that this idea that you know technological progress isn't something that's just limited to the living it can actually happen in the world of the dead as well well i think it must because
0: uh I was certainly convinced that 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 was exactly, I mean, that's what he said, what the man said. But you know something fascinating about that man? And folks, those of you who don't know this story, I have an implant in my ear. I'm sure everyone knows that. But there was a doctor who was keen to get it x-rayed, and he was on his way to, asking me to get it removed. This is a second. There was a removal attempt years ago that failed, fortunately. Uh, But in any case, I wasn't going to get it removed. But whoever was involved with it did not necessarily. They they wanted to reinforce the importance of leaving it in. Let me put it that way. So a couple of nights before the CAT scan was uh, uh, set up, I had a, a visit from two men one of whom i know and i say i know him because i've seen him three or four times in my life i've seen him when he was a boy i've seen him uh i had seen him when i went i went out to the desert one night uh, to spend just a time completely alone out in the desert and then i've seen him this additional time and he proceeded to explain it all to me and to explain the Constantine Rodevay story and everything, then said that it basically had been its technology, as Joshua just said, from the other side. But here's an interesting kicker. The man is identical to a man I know well in this world who has no idea. I'm going to tell him. In fact, we're going to have lunch later, later today and I'm going to tell him this story for the first time. He also is party to the single, one of the strangest things that has ever happened in my life and in his. I had a sexual encounter with the visitor, a visitor years and years ago. I don't have those now, fortunately. I'm not the type. Anyway, I... Uh, there was in the room, room was filled with people it was in a room in the cabin where it happened and it's filled with people one of whom i knew and he was an intelligence officer whom i've known for a long time and i filed that away i i didn't um uh, didn't think anything more of it i never told a soul the name Not my wife, not anyone. I've never spoken it. Fast forward 30 years. I meet this man that I've just been talking about, the normal human part of him And he proceeds to tell me of his encounter experience, which is total blackness. He doesn't remember anything about it except it happened. And he was reading a detective novel. He was a boy when it happened. I met him when he was a boy, too, or a version of him. And he came away from the experience, he said, with only one thing. He had been remembered that he had been told to underline a name in a detective novel he was reading. And he was told that this person knew something that he had been told never to discuss with anybody ever. The name in the detective novel was the name of the guy who witnessed that sexual encounter with
1: a visitor. It's it's like these little mystery boxes that get developed. Um, and it's this. I'm I'm hoping you'll tell
0: me a little bit about the relationship between the guy who I know and who's absolutely no idea. Of any of the other meetings I've had with him or his doppelganger or whatever, what are the what is going on here? What are these two people? Is this well, really relates to your book.
1: No, I I I think that it does. Um, so my my editor, who is uh, Barbara Fisher, who runs the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast, uh, she read read the book and she she loved it, but she said, you know, it's not really just about death, right? And I'm like, I know it's not. The death is sort of like the gateway into this discussion. And that's why the, I think Ecology of Souls is really the, the important thing to focus on when you read that title. Because it really is about not only the reincarnative process, but also seems to be about some of the ways that we used to think about the human soul that we've simply forgotten. And one of those things that I think has a lot of... Uh, contains a lot of explicative power or at least power to help us understand ourselves as this idea of of polypsychism this idea that you are not just you you are several things several components you know, you might want to call them soul or spirit or whatever, um, depending on, you know, your your ancient belief system. You had, you know, up to nine of these things. And they might have their own distinct names. But there does seem to be something to this idea that you are not just you and a part of you can go off with some degree of its own autonomy. And this is what we see in these old wishes, Sabbaths. And this is what we see in some of these wild hunt stories. And obviously, it's at To a certain degree, what we see in some of these out of body experiences because the physical self is left behind and the soul is able to turn around and watch. But it's also something that you see, you know, in a lot of these bilocation or doppelganger stories as well. And this idea that someone can be in two different places at at once is just something that really is a universal motif. I mean, it's one of those motifs that I can actually say is literally universal. Like, I'm not just sort of like saying, oh, well, not here, not there. Like, it's something that you find really everywhere. And it's often been tied to all manner of 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 phenomena and it seems like something like that might be what was going on in that scenario that you outlined that's that a part of this individual maybe even displaced from time for all i know because i think that time plays some sort of component in a lot of these experiences but a part of this individual was able to sort of wander off on its own and, and obtain this other information that that he normally wouldn't have had access to
0: I don't know. When I first saw him, he was a boy. He was about 13. I encountered him at a baseball game and he was sitting with a, a gentleman from the department of defense whom I knew who interfaced with the tall blonde people of, of, of legend and in, in um, in a, out in Boulder, Colorado They're gone now. They're not there anymore, and that's all shut down. But in those days, it was very active. And uh, I was rather surprised to see him. And I assumed he was with three children, and I assumed these children were something special because he wouldn't have been with them otherwise. And it was quite clear after a couple of moments at the baseball game, I was ended up seemingly randomly ticketed sitting beside them, but there was nothing random about it, I'm sure. Uh, They could read my mind. They were good readers, the kids, and I. So I figured whatever is going on here, um, I don't want to interface with him directly because there's all kinds of problems that I'm with the Greys and <laughs> he's with the blondes and you cannot imagine. You, you, yeah. You, but believe me, it's a it's a path that you don't want to go down if you're if you're is. It, it, deeply enmeshed in this as I mm-hmm. am, so I I uh I didn't say anything to him, and they left after a little while. But boy, you talk out here about fairy births and the dead, and oh, another thing I wanted to ask you so badly—it's just driving me crazy. The fairies adverse, adverse—they're adverse to iron. My cabin is on un- over one of the largest seams of iron on planet earth. The iron mountains record storage mm-hmm. facility is drilled into it about 20
1: miles North of the cabin. The whole place is magnetic. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because as, as much as that certainly is a staple of, of Western European fairy folklore that they, that they have this, you know, repulsion towards iron or steel. Um, and at the same time, if you look at just paranormal phenomena in general, there doesn't seem to be that same association. Even the, the late Rosemary Ellen Guiley remarked on the fact that, you know, some some cultures thought that iron was a repellent towards spirits, and some people thought that it actually attracted them in. So, it attracted uh, ghosts, yeah, you yeah, say, yeah. Uh, yeah, so so it really is kind of a kind of a toss up um, in terms of whether or not that was an attractor or a repellent. But, um, but that's interesting, because I do think there are certain factors, especially like geological factors of, of any sort of description, that can sort of enhance the importance of it or the ability for an area to sort of permeate that veil. I think that the person, the individual, the experiencer is probably the most important factor, but I do think that there are some places on earth that have a certain combination of factors that might in aggregate sort of thin the veil. So what I mean by that is, you know, you've heard people say, Oh, places with underground water sources or places where the dead are buried or places with certain, you know, mineral or geological components. People have said that all these different things kind of enhance how much activity in area sees and i wonder if it's not you know there's just some sort of threshold that has to be met and if maybe it's like if some place has got a ton of dead bodies then yeah you're going to have strange stuff happen there or if it's a place where like well there's not as many dead bodies but it also has these other factors then it passes over that threshold and allows it to be um you know just a space where you get these sort of variety of phenomena called down and yet it, it there's
0: something about places because you know like i'm here in santa monica and i'm on sand it's a, it's sand it, it liquefies during earthquakes unfortunately so we're all pretty eager to i we're we're, we're we're basically we're floating on sand there i was sitting on iron i mean it was really a lot of iron so two completely different places, but they show up in both places very readily.
1: Yeah, it's one of those things where I think some people think about window areas in that very John Keel sense. They're like, stuff just mostly happens here. And it's like, well, that it's it's an idea. It's a theory. I don't think it can really be applied that unilaterally. I think what's most interesting about your cabin is there were some uh, burial tumuli uh, in close proximity, as You're I recall. Right, N- nearby. And
0: I've got to go out there again because the guy who owns it now is dying to find those burial
1: mounds, and no one is going to be able to find them except me. I already know that. Well, and and that's the thing about that you sort of realize if you sort of look at this human history, but also post-colonial nations. I mean, they're probably the dead everywhere around us, (laughs) no matter where we've been, you know. Um, my, My property probably has a couple of people who in the course of human history have died on the property, and you just don't necessarily realize it because it's not these mass burials that have been memorialized, but... Having said all that, I do think that there is something um, to a lot of these uh, burial tumuli, and in the way that they might even be constructed as sort of cosmic attractors uh, to sort of draw this stuff in. Which again is sort of a very John Keel idea, but uh, I think there I think there is something to it. A variety of factors, including location, the construction materials used in the in the building of these things. I mean, one idea that I've heard that I really love is that some of these tumuli have these layers of organic and inorganic material and they almost perhaps function very similar to orgone accumulators like Wilhelm Reich was developing. And that might play a role in sort of allowing enough energy to manifest to bring these things about. But again, I think as much as I I really like these ideas of place playing a point or place playing a part, I really think that it, the individual is at the center of what makes a lot of these things happen. And that's when you start saying, okay, well, maybe it is tied into their one of their souls or you know the the lessons that they were brought here to learn or even you know whatever sort of ancestors might be attached to them
0: yeah well i feel like i was brought here to do a job and it never occurred to anyone involved that there's such a thing as a vacation so here i am anyway (laughs) i forgot the first break completely you'll be delighted to know free dreamlanders so i might blast you more with a little uh banner saying to please subscribed, which you will not do, uh, but that's okay. Here, let's do a break now. Here's here's a break, and it'll probably be the only break in the show, darn it. Okay, here we go. Free Dreamlanders, goodbye for a few minutes. Uh, watch these things, and then we'll be back with Joshua Cutchin, the Ecology of Souls, and his website is joshuakutchen.com. It was the quietest, loveliest evening you could imagine. then suddenly uh, a group of them are coming toward him and he gets taken outside to the back porch where he's placed on this cot that then takes him out to a clearing in the woods. I remember sitting in a circle in the woods in the snow and then I suddenly went up in the air. I felt like when you're going up in a fast elevator, I felt my stomach went le- left behind, and I see the trees going by, and then I see the clouds. Then I'm in a little room just like that. It's frightening. Being completely conscious, not having control of your body, and then being shot up into some kind of ship or room. one like trees in here. It kind of shit. Tell you the truth, it's not clean in here. And I kept trying to wake up because I obviously was not in bed. You know, it had to be a nightmare, right? And uh, I realized these creatures were there. They were funny looking. They were like the workers. And then there was this willowy kind of taller being with the great big black eyes, he was the leader, It felt like a woman to me. I see the heck real clearly. Are you old? She says, yes, I know. She's looking at me. real close. She put your cheek up by my face. What do you mean an operation? I'm not going to let you do an operation on me. You have absolutely no right. She says we do have a right. I kept trying to wake up because I thought I was having a nightmare. I'm getting real scared again. Real scared. Because I cannot do a thing about this. Could let me smell you. I wanted to smell them because I wanted to, I was trying to get some way of telling whether or not this was real. So this one puts his hand up against my face and it smelled like cinnamon. The smell of cinnamon was grounding in one sense. It made me think that I was in a real situation. In another sense, it was extremely disturbing for the same reason. The real situation I was in was very weird and very provocative, with two different kinds of extremely strange-looking creatures, and I was physically helpless and couldn't get away. That's when they start to perform experiments on his body. Blue ones open a box and show me this needle. And they're going to put the needle in my head. I, how I know that, I don't know, but I do. And I start to say, you're going to ruin a beautiful mind. But they put the needle in the side of my head anyway. It makes a cracking sound. But there's no pain. I they are going to cut my whole head open. Have you ever read Communion? Or have you never read Communion? It's out in a new edition. Very powerful. A subtly new cover that reflects the fact that the visitors are now looking back at us because they truly are. You can get it from the unknowncountry.com store as a Kindle, as a beautiful, sumptuous paperback, or as an unabridged audio book read by me. It's the first time in the whole life of communion that it has been read in full in audio format, and believe you me, I felt that reading. I put my life, my memories into it, and I trust you can hear it in the voice I sure felt it while I was reading. So get communion, listen to it, read it. Communion is of central importance to all of our lives. We're talking to Joshua Kutchin. Kutch, as you can see on the screen, if you're watching, if you're listening, then I have some exciting information here you. Is- Nickname is Kutch. Anyway, Kutch has written a masterpiece, a book called Ecology of Souls, A New Mythology of Death and the Paranormal. You know, I have to tell you, I haven't read anything remotely this insightful since I read Evans Wentz, his great book about the fairy faith. And, uh, you know, this is... In many ways, it's much more because you—you know—we know a lot more now than we did then. Uh, so the book, anyway, is Ecology of Souls. The website is JoshuaCutchin dot uh, and the the crawl went on its own. Uh, so, listening free, go to unknowncountry.com dot com to subscribe, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All right, now let's talk a little bit about you. It, you go into DMT and Terrence McKenna and all of that stuff. Is, Terrence despised me. Uh, I, I'm sorry I to hear on, that. Oh, I, it doesn't matter. He, he's he's one of a vast number of people <laughs> who, who are sort of in this space in a different way than me. And, you know, they're strong believers in what they think is true. And that's okay. I loved him. He was a wonderful guy. And he had a wonderful sense of humor. Um, and And he was brilliant brilliant man so uh fascinating stuff about DMT and but one of the things that has recently been discovered about DMT that you sort of touch on in the book is that um what it actually does all the psychedelics in different ways do is they they don't enhance they don't intensify things going on in the brain they actually shut it down so the ego is shut down it's not there anymore there's no filter see so can you ex- tell us a little bit about what that means to the person experiencing it you've done it you've done DMT yeah, i, I have not I have not. <laughs> have you done any psychedelics?
1: No, I haven't. I'm just, uh, I am a collector of travelogues, as it were. <laughs> well, me too. I would never do psychedelics. I, I'm not sure what would happen. Well, I might actually
0: physically disappear
1: into another well, world. Yeah, I, I want to. I'm just, I, I have a little bit too much trepidation that I wouldn't come back from that, you know. Um, me too. That's exactly why I won't do it. In fact, years ago, a doctor told me,
0: uh, a neurologist said, don't do it because your experiences suggest to me
1: you might not come back. Yeah, and, and I think that's something to consider. And, you know, of course, there's a contingent of people who will say, well, why are you talking about this if you've never done it? Well, you know, a lot of astronomers haven't been to the moon and haven't been to space. Like, it's still okay to yeah. collect, collect you know, accounts and sort of try to collate them and figure them out.
0: Well, let's um, talk
1: about, we're, we're we're both theoreticians
0: here now. That's been established. And so we're going to theorize what does it mean when the ego is shut down? What is the person then perceiving? Because there shouldn't be perceiving anything, right? According to uh, physicalism, the the idea that the world is a physical place, entirely physical. In the brain, if the brain, if the personality is turned off in the brain, you shouldn't be seeing anything, but you see
1: a great deal. I mean, it's sort of a variation on the whole near-death experience in that regard, right? If the brain is shut off, how do people have these experiences where they're saying exactly what happened in the, the surgery room with the doctors and whatnot. Um, But yeah, I mean, a lot of this, some of this laboratory research does indicate that brain activity actually diminishes under the influence of these substances, which is, contrary completely to what they expected. They thought that brains would just light up because imagination is kindled. And no, it does seem to perhaps drop that that veil of Maya that we alluded to earlier. Or as you know, Rick Strassman, who did a lot of these pioneering DMT studies, would have said, it, it changes your brain from channel normal to channel weird. Um, but as far as the ego um, the ego death as it is, um, it's just something that you, you run up against time and again in a lot of these different uh, encounters. And I think that sense of stripping you of self seems to open you up in a lot of ways. Let me provide a little bit of background on that. So you see the ego death most commonly in a lot of these these experiences where you have... Someone's consumed entheogens or something along those lines. And uh, there is this sense of this pure consciousness, almost this monist idea that everything is in touch with itself. But there was some interesting research done by uh, David Luke and Mario Kittness that showed that um, people who are regular users of some of these psychedelic substances do experience quote unquote paranormal phenomenon, which might be you know poltergeist phenomena or the sensations of levitation or telepathy, things like that, side effects in a lot of regards. They experience it more when they're not taking the substances than when they are.
0: <laughs> yeah. So it's
1: almost like the doors of perception get blown open, and then you're just open to all these things. But there's a really interesting idea, which kind of ties in a little bit with your work uh, uh, in the key, which is this idea in a lot of the classical cultures of you know Greece and Rome that if you died you know, you were destined for reincarnation. And what you would do is you would either drink the drink of of forgetfulness or you would pass over the plains of forgetfulness, lethe. And if you didn't partake in either of these activities, you would remember your past lives. And the people who decided to forego that would, um, would remember and they would become the seers and the prophets and the prophetesses of their time. And that seems quite similar to me in what a lot of these people who have near-death experiences accomplish. They, they remember their experience. They, they've had that sort of ego death where they've been separated from their old self, from their old lives, and they remember. Like, people who have near-death experiences and don't have any memory of something miraculous happening generally don't exhibit these things. But people who do are the ones who get clairvoyance and telepathic communication. They see spirits, things like that. So I think that's interesting in and of itself. But a lot of this ego death seems to be very much uh tied into it goes hand in hand with this idea that i ran into across a lot of different contact modalities which was the idea that one should try to die to death and that was sort of the highest attainment that you could find this is probably what was the motivating reason behind the eleusinian mysteries of, of ancient greece yeah, is and that, also yeah. it's a huge thing in Tibetan buddhism Tibetan Buddhism, I think you could make an argument. Um, you know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Ray Hernandez's uh, free oh, studies. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. yeah, yeah. A, a lot of his correspondents said similar things, that their fear of death had been obliterated. You find that in the near death experience. Yes, <laughs> yeah. She had an NDE and uh
0: that was it for she she died a conscious death. She decided when she would die. She did it all, she organized it, and she was never
1: scared for a second and and that to me i mean that's such a that's such a gift because so many yeah. of us even if we don't realize it, we've incorporated it so much this paralytic fear of these things and you know yeah, an she argument even, be- i mean she even she even organized
0: a method of contacting her of enabling her to contact us the white moth which my listeners know all about and a lot of them have had the white moth in their lives and she's very very active still Uh, She said, I'm not Anne anymore, but I'll always be Anne for you. And it meant all of us
1: because she shows up in a lot of lives. And, you know, so if if we can... I'm not trying to be in the driver's seat here, but this is such a great opportunity to share this. Um, The fact that that she returns as a moth, I think, is... I mean, it's so symbolically laden. Um, Tell us about the symbolism. Well, you know, you've got you've got a lot of these different figures throughout a lot of different cultures that are called psychopomps. And if you're not familiar with that term you are just through cultural osmosis we think of you know some of the celebrities would be like the grim reaper or the angel of death or uh, anubis in egypt or hermes in greece um odin and or Valk- valkyries and some norse mythologies but these are figures that lead you across that threshold they take you and they guide you across that threshold depending upon the certain religious system you might actually see them crop up in your lives during points of transition as well Not only these figures, but also you see um, certain natural phenomena, like the sun and the moon serving the psychopomp role of carrying souls to the afterlife, and you also see animals. And the animals that you see almost embody, almost always embody themes of companionship and or transportation. And those are things like Dogs, obviously, leading you and guiding you and being a faithful companion. Horses, which can take you places that human beings can't go on their own. Birds, which can travel to places that they can't on their own. And also, you know, just anything that is winged, including moths. And, you know, it was very common in certain Mesoamerican societies to think of uh, moths and butterflies as being psychopomps that actually carry the soul away on your wings. And if you look at the psychopomp motif, which obviously ties into that, that with Anne, But um, if you look at the psychopomp motif, a lot of the behaviors of what, you know, popular ufology would call UFO occupants seems to mirror a lot of the behavior that these psychopomps have. And what's more, I mean, the UFO is is a transportation metaphor. Like that's primarily what it is. It's what everybody talks about who's interested in UFOs, where they are, where they come from, how do they go here? Look at the way that they travel. It's all about transportation. And transportation metaphors are almost always metaphors of transition to the other world or to the other side.
0: Well, you know, it, we know—at least I know—and that the other side does have technology because I'm wearing some of it. And uh, so, therefore, why wouldn't UFOs be technology from another world? Now, they got that gets me to the fact that I have a been in another world in a jeep with a, another guy's kid, which my listeners all know these stories. I, you probably do too, and. Um, I've ridden a bicycle in another world down this down the street here about a year ago, year and a half ago. So, uh, are these worlds? Is there really sort of an eth- ethereal world of the dead, or are we kind of oscillating back and forth between two very physical universes? You know,
1: I, I have a couple of suspicions, and that's all that there'll ever be for me. Our um, suspicions, you know, I. I hesitate a lot of times to go down the interdimensional rabbit hole because I think that we conceptualize dimensions in a pretty strange way. Like, we think of it as a place that you go when, really, if you look at, you know, essays like Flatland and whatnot, it's about, it's about you know, if, if someone is a two-dimensional figure and you put your finger on the page, they're not going to see your finger. They're just going to see a circle or a dot, right? So I think that sometimes we just glitch in and out of these other things. Um, and I think that sometimes we go there um, wherever you see an instance of missing time, which happens in yes, the UFO experience, but also fairyland experiences and also NDEs and also some cryptid encounters, much to my surprise. Um, And uh, you know, even in some instances of, you know, shamanic traveling or, or out of body traveling, things like that. I think that implies that there's been some sort of, you've gone somewhere. Right. And, then you have these other experiences where people don't report these sensations of being in another place. They don't report missing time. They don't report the Oz factor or any of these things we've come to think about signifying a transition of you into another space, but something else comes over. And, you know, that might be something as like the Bigfoot sightings or people just seeing a random critter of some sort. And I think that that's perhaps the opposite happening for them they're, they're stepping over into our world. And the idea that I like is that, you know, there are some, some visitors in a college dorm room on the other side, somewhere smoking DMT or something (laughs) and they're popping in. Um, but you know, you know, I I think that's, I think that's, that's a possibility, but I do think that it, it runs alongside us. And I I think that it's inches from your, from your nose right now, you know, um, that's what I suspect. Yeah. Well,
0: it's certainly true in the unquiet flat, as my friends call this apartment,
1: <laughs> yeah, I yeah. love that the quiet flat yeah. yeah yeah and uh you know I I think that um I don't know if it's I think that our terms we're so beholden to a lot of these this terminology uh you know afterlife implies the dead but other world is kind of a little bit fits a little bit better because it implies that it's not just exclusively a, a domain for the dead I just think that's a place that a lot of these things a lot of this energy comes and goes to and from Um, and you know what, something else I find really interesting is that if you look back across the cultures, this other world was always, you know, across the sea. Oh, it's over that mountain range. Oh, it's a distant land to the West. And to get there, you would Take you know, usually some sort of transportation, a horse. You know, you'd be carried into the afterlife on a horse or on a boat, a magical flying boat, even Ridge, r- river sticks. Uh, Ex- exactly, exactly. Fairy um, and fairy, any connection between the two words? No, no, actually, not. I was surprised, but no, not. That um, yeah. would have been great. That would have been great, but no. I
0: thought so too, and I said
1: that saw that in the book. <laughs> yeah, um, but the, the the boat is really a psychopomp symbol, and what happens when a culture? a global culture has mapped more or less every square inch of the planet. And we find that there isn't the other world here on earth. What happens to that? I would argue that it gets transposed to the stars and that all that baggage that we've always had of the psychopomps boat of the, you know, the transport of the sun pulling the, or the horses pulling this chariot of the sun across the sky, all that gets transposed to this very 20th, 21st century motif of, of the UFO experience, I think. And yeah,
0: excuse me, folks, for the. I, I, I have major allergies as always. I think everybody does these days. Anyway, um, oh, I have remembered the break, but I think it's not a break. This is the end of the show for the free Dreamlanders. So uh, the book is Ecology of Souls. As you can hear and see if you're watching on video, it's a load of fun. I mean, it's the kind of thing that you just uh, can't put down. and so I had a lot of I, a lot of fun with it. I don't, I don't actually interview people whose books I don't enjoy because, you know and um, anyway, and his website is joshuacutchen.com. Thank you very much as always for being with us on Dreamland and we hope to see you back again next week. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.